Welcome back in. It is the Bill Michaels Show. I'm Ben Kenny. He is Grant Bills here with you on this beautiful Wednesday in the great state of Wisconsin. Uh, talking to Bill back tomorrow. So Grant and I taking you through to two o'clock. A lot of chatter today. Brewers obviously lose six to two to the Cardinals. We'll talk about tonight's game coming up a little bit later on in the program. What do they need to do to take that game, take a 2-1 series lead, if you will, in the four-game set against the Cardinals? A lot going on today. Uh, The House committee has subpoenaed Dan Snyder to appear and testify after he had dodged it and gone to Europe for, quote-unquote, business happenings, which I'm sure were definitely definitely necessary. Uh, Dan Snyder definitely had to go to Europe when he was going to appear before the House Oversight Committee. But Goodell testified today. It's a whole disaster. I just, I I wonder when it's going to end. When are we finally going to get this guy out? But we'll see. We'll we'll see what actually comes out of it. As Andrew Brandt says, great Twitter follow, obviously former Packer VP. As he always says on Twitter, there will be lawyers, and many of them. So There will be lots of lawyers involved with this. Grant, it was said earlier, it was talked about earlier today on Over the Line, our morning show here in Madison and in many of our other great city, uh, great affiliates. Manny Ramirez, Boston great. He actually was my favorite baseball player growing up. My dad was a big Red Sox fan. And I, when I was really young, first getting baseball cards, first watching, I, I just loved him. And this was before the steroid stuff in like 2008. 2009 he was I he was by far my favorite player so I will always there will always be a soft spot in the heart for Manny Ramirez now he was on the Red Sox broadcast against the uh, they're playing the Detroit Tigers he was there I believe his number was retired something along those lines I saw he threw out the first pitch but they were talking about Derek Jeter and here's a little minute snippet of the conversation there's a lot of pressure playing in Boston. There's no getting around it. Ask the guy. I mean, really. Hey, but you got to understand this. If you haven't played in Boston or New York, you're not in the big leagues. Man, that's true. Hey, it's like if you put Jeter in Kansas City in those years. Right. He was just a regular player. Yeah. Whoa. You put him on that big stage and hit 400 in the postseason for many, many Ooh. years. Oh, there's no doubt about no it. Doubt. He's the greatest in the history. Yeah, right? he's the a greatest. Place. This is a tough place to play. But he make you better. I will. Make you better because you got to be ready. Every night. Because they will let you know. Oh, yeah. They will let you know when you're not right. Well, that make you, to be honest with you, when I was with Cleveland, I was playing and I was a good player. But when I came to Boston, I got better because the fans, they will let you know that you wasn't playing. So, uh, Grant, I I can let you choose your battle here. You want to talk about Jeter being a nobody in Kansas City or about if you haven't played in Boston or New York, you haven't played in the big leagues? Ah, man, I talk so much smack about Boston the last couple of weeks. This discussion is so difficult to do. It's easy to say if this player played here, we wouldn't talk about them. But, I mean, there's probably dozens of those cases across all of sports, right? You've probably thought that way about someone in the last year, at least. I mean, I used to think that about Aaron Judge. And then this year he came roaring back, and he's fantastic again. So it just depends. But 
And we've been talking about Lorenzo Cain, a guy who was a bona fide superstar in Kansas City. So it is doable, but you don't get consistent postseason opportunity, which I think is the good point they were making. Yeah, it's the spotlight thing. I think the spotlight definitely, some people rise to it. There's some great, uh, there was great research done on is clutch, is being a clutch hitter a real thing? And the overall takeaway was it really, like, people aren't just clutch hitters. There are big moments where people capitalize on them. But if you look at throughout their careers, Many of them, Mike Trout, Derek Jeter, all the great players throughout baseball, they perform in those moments similar to they perform how they perform throughout their careers. It's just because they are so good and better than everybody, you see more of those moments happen. Orlando Arcio is pretty clutch for the Brewers in the playoffs the last couple of years. I No, I, I know what you're saying. Like, what about Mike Trout? This is a good example, right? What if Mike Trout was on a team that was in the playoffs and playing on national TV every year? I like, think, would we think of him differently? We already think so highly of him. I think Moore would be on the right side of history and understand that he's the greatest hitter. He, he He's the greatest hitter since Barry Bonds and one of the greatest hitters in the history of the game. Yeah. To say that he'd be a nobody, that's tough. Because if Manny Ramirez wants to make the case, Jeter is only Jeter because he got consistent postseason opportunity in New York. That's one thing. But it's it's too much to say someone would be a no one or someone would be a bum. We wouldn't talk about them. Maybe the brand wouldn't be there, right? That's a better way to look at it. The brand of a player is made so much stronger by playing for the Yankees. It's not to say he'd be a worse player, but we'd think of him differently, perceive him differently. I, sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, throughout Derek Jeter's career, 14 All-Stars, five-time world champion, if I'm not mistaken, he, he won five gold gloves. So there's my problem is there are things that he won and, and accolades he got that were only given to him because he was Derek Jeter because he was New York Derek Jeter. And he's one of the greatest of all time. I don't want to discount him or what he did throughout his career, but he was one of the worst defensive shortstops to ever play the game. And really when I first saw this clip, I, it made me happy because yeah, I, I respect everything Jeter's done. But him being in New York and him being that massive market, the team was winning a lot. Part of it's because of him. But him being that guy in that setting, I think got him a lot of the accolades he wouldn't have otherwise gotten. The All-Star Games definitely because of how the voting works. Like if you're good and on the Yankees, you get a lot more votes than if you're good somewhere else. That's just how it always is. But the gold gloves, five gold gloves. Like what are we doing here? This dude. Lorenzo Cain won one. In his career, Derek Jeter had negative 165 defense. I'm sorry, negative 186 defensive runs saved in his career. Me and you were technically more productive defenders than he was in his career because we weren't negatives. Correct. Yeah, but this is what sucks about baseball. And we see it in basketball sometimes too. Like Marcus Smart won Defensive Player of the Year. Come on. His team's really good. His defense's really good. Yeah, I get it. Marcus Smart's not a Defensive Player of the Year. The Derek Jeter stuff is, it's its the legacy awards. It's the branding. It's the golden gloves. It's the nickname. It's the persona, the persona, persona, persona. It's the brand, right? That's the difference. I don't think he would have been any different as a player anywhere else. We'd view him differently. What about the fan thing? What, what do you make of what he said with the fact, like if until you're in that crazy environment of New York and Boston in the playoffs, you're not really in the big leagues because 
I think, yes, it makes some players better. I also think it makes some guys a lot worse. If Ben Simmons was on the Sacramento Kings throughout his career, I think he'd be a much better basketball player. I think the pressure of being in a market where people look at their teams and react to their teams like they do in Philly definitely hurt him. But then I think it also helps a lot of guys on the other end of that spectrum. Some people are motivated by it, and it makes them tick differently. Well, what if Yelich didn't play in Milwaukee? I texted you during my show a couple weeks about this, like how we treat Yelich in the way that he struggled. He'd get treated differently in some of these bigger markets, for sure. That's what I was actually going to bring up, because I think the comparison makes a lot of sense here. When, when he speaks about, I, I'm Manny Ramirez, he's Derek Jeter, being in those settings made us better. I think that's undeniable. I agree with it, but I think it should also be said, and it's true that if Christian Yelich played in New York, he would one, I obviously a lot more scrutiny, but I feel like if he played in New York, then we would see a much bigger burnout than we do now. Like, is he back to playing great baseball? No. Is he really good at leadoff? Yes, but that's another story yet. If he was in Boston or New York, I think the reaction of him on the field would be different. And I can't say that for sure because there's no way to prove it. But I feel like his the, the way that he would take a lot of the intense scrutiny, probably over-the-top scrutiny, if we're being honest. There's, there would be way too much criticism because that's just how it works in those markets. But I, I think it would negatively affect his play. Like Ben Simmons in Philly. You guys might have broken him, honestly. I, I think he kind of broke himself. I mean, he quit on his team in college. His team didn't make the NCAA tournament. He quit on his team. It's not like the Philly just brought that out. We we had seen that forever. Yeah, I'm not defending Ben Simmons and what he's done. But I wonder if Ben Simmons, if play out what happened in the 2020 playoffs, 2020-2021 playoffs, Mm. in a different city. Ben Simmons loses confidence, has a tough time, except he doesn't play in Philly. Do you think he plays last year? Right. Like, do you think he needs a whole year off or do you think he just comes back and deals with it? And Philly made it such a way where he wasn't able to do that. I think there's an argument that he would have dunked that ball when he was wide open under the basket. If it was a different city because he was so scared at getting fouled and getting to the free throw line. Yeah, I agree with that. But in that setting, I don't really look at the fans and the reaction around it as the culprit there. I look at him as the one because I mean, it's not like they were talking about something drastic. They're, they they were just they want him to shoot the ball. They wanted yeah. him to be aggressive. And in that there was a seven game series against the Hawks. Do you know how many shots he took in the fourth quarter? In all seven fourth quarters. He played in all uh, of them. It was ridiculous. What was it like two? Three. And they were all three, in game yeah. one. He went two for three in the fourth quarter in game one. He didn't shoot a field goal. He didn't shoot a free throw. Like, it's not like we're talking something drastic here. For instance, like, let's look at Yelich. What if Yelich had an okay year? Go back to his early Marlins days, but it wasn't MVP level. Like what Judge kind of was doing. There were years where Judge was struggling. He wasn't what we saw in 2017. He's obviously back to it now, but I think there's, there's different levels of, like, expecting Yelich to immediately go back to the MVP might be a little bit too much to ask for because it's not going to happen. Meanwhile, asking or wondering why a basketball player won't attack the rim and go to the free throw line, I think that is very warranted. Yeah. Why don't you be aggressive? Do your thing. Be who you are. And basketball is a little bit different than baseball, right? With Ben Simmons, I think the issue was there was there was never want. There was never drive for him to get better or do anything. I don't know that that's our issue with Yelich. I do think some of these markets impact players differently. And there's certainly a case you made. I mean, look at Wiggins, right? And it has nothing to do with fans. 
but where you are impacts how you are as a player so much. Wiggins really didn't transform himself as a player. He just went to a place where the limited things that he's done all along were a little bit better applied. They fit better there. So I think you can argue fit for any player. Jeter is no different. I'm glad that you were motivated enough to bring this up and hate on him today. I love this. Well, I mean, that's kind of been a, one of the things I've staked my brand around. Don't like Coach K. <laughs> I can't stand the Ohio State. And yeah. I I love Jeter. I respect him. I, I respect everything he did. But I think there's a big-time revisionist history when looking back. And it is also how we as sports fans have gotten smarter. There is a difference between his fielding percentage being good and the fact he was he he should have been playing third base. He should have been playing second base. The the best shortstop on their team was Alex Rodriguez. They moved him to yeah. third, right? Like those jump throws, and this could be controversial, but those jump throws I don't think should be really celebrated because he didn't have the range to actually make it a normal play. Yeah, <laughs> but that is what it is. That's All right, eight seven seven eight six seven sixteen seventy. I guess one question here that we can ask generally is. Would Christian Yelich's production right now be different than, uh, say, if he was playing in New York, than if he was dealing with that public, how the public looks at the baseball team there? I think that might be what comes out of this conversation because that's the one good example we have in this state right now. 877-867-1670. Let's go to line one. You're on the Bill Michaels Show. Who do we got? Robert. Robert, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, you know, you guys are ragging on Derek Jeter. Will anybody say anything about him being the first Yankee to have over 3,000 hits? No, I have. I am wildly impressed with what Jeter did during his career. I, I didn't mean it to be a full anti-Derek Jeter thought. I just wanted to point out some of the shortcomings. He was great. Well, well yeah, but I mean, you don't bring up his hits and his clutch hits in World Series and playoff games. I know, which which I are mean, undeniable. I'm, listen, listen, I'm a huge Yankee fan. I go back to Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris days. And Derek Jeter is the first New York Yankee of all those players they had on those teams back in the 60s and 50s to have over 3,000 hits. Yeah, he, he was that a... That means a lot. He's a worthy Hall of Famer. I'll also add that... In an era where a lot of the great players succumbed to steroids, he did not. I think that's wildly impressive. I guess I, I'll ask you, do you think something would have been different if he had played his career in Kansas City? Oh, I, I really do. I think, but I mean, I yeah, I do. I, I do think things would have been different. But I think Derek Jeter handled that pressure in New York. And what uh, Ramirez said was totally right. I I agree with that. Yeah, I'm with you. I think some people and some very special athletes that are at the top of their respective games, some people are helped out a lot by an intense environment where there are high stakes and there's a lot of, I don't think angst is the right word, but there's a lot of passion around the stadium and they'll let you know when you're not playing well. But when you are playing well, you're celebrated. I think that rises, that, that helps some people rise up and achieve greatness. Manny Ramirez is one of them and Derek Jeter is another. All right. All right, well, Robert. Appreciate the phone call. Uh, I Listen, listen. I don't want to go rag on Derek Jeter. I just, when we talk about this and have this conversation, I did need to point out that he was a below average defensive shortstop. Well, I think part of what Robert said kind of 
it gets back to the whole point of this conversation. You talk about all the clutch hits and the great postseason moments. Okay, well, what if he's like Mike Trout and his team never gets to make the playoffs, right? And I think that's not as much slandering Derek Jeter, but we're trying to talk about how fit and location and luck for players matters, and it changes how we look at these guys. Derek Jeter, no one can take away 3,000 hits. Absolutely. But that's not what Manny Ramirez was talking about, I think, in that clip that you played. Yeah, and like he was a very clutch hitter in terms of the definition of clutch, but it's also good. He got so many postseason opportunities, I think is also part of it. And it's impressive. He always, because the, he always stepped up to the plate and, and made it happen. I think those big moments in the postseason kind of make some people shrink in a way. Like there are some that can't get over the hump of a crazy pressure packed moment, but I don't think it goes the other way where it makes some people instantly amazingly better. If that makes sense. Like I, I'll go find it, but Jeter played great in all the postseasons. but I'm not going to say that he would like the, the clutch thing is hard for me to wrap my head around. I just think the great players that got all the, a lot of opportunities, you saw a lot of greatness because they were great necessarily, not because they were quote unquote clutch, but that's a different conversation for another time. That's fair. I'm not going to disagree with any of that. All right, 877-867-1670. You want to weigh in, do it. Uh, what do you think Yelich would be doing now if this was all happening in New York? I, I hope they would have moved him to leadoff because that clearly helps a bit. But we'll talk more about that when we come back. A lot more also to get to. It is Ben Kenny and Grant Bills in on the Bill Michaels Show. Covering Wisconsin sports like a blanket, this is the Bill Michaels Show. On the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Welcome back in. It is the Bill Michaels Show. Taking you up until 2 o'clock. Bill again back tomorrow to talk about tonight's Brewers game. Grant, what are you thinking about tonight's game? It's uh, it's an interesting one to me because it's. I talked about this with Ebo to start the show today. This feels like kind of a turning point game. Obviously, it's game three of the series, but with Eric Lauer on the hill, he has had a great start to the year and a lot of impressive stuff, but then there's also been some struggles as of late. He's given up, I think, 12 total runs in his last two starts. This could be kind of a turning point start for Lauer. I think it's a really important game because when you face the Cardinals for four and two of the games are started by Chichi Gonzalez and Jason Alexander, the other two are supposed to be your two aces that are healthy. You got to win those two where your good pitchers are out. I think this is a really important game or as important as it could be in late June. I think I'm going to go fishing right after work and I'm going to listen to this game on the radio. I think that's what I'm going to do with tonight's game because I'm a little stressed about it. You're right. Uh, you kind of stole my thunder. I was going to pull up the schedule and make sure that Jason Alexander is in fact starting tomorrow. You're exactly right. You have four games against a divisional rival with a great offense. And let's be real. The Brewers, I mean, they could get a wild card, but they need to win the division. This division is poor. They need to win this division. So these games against St. Louis are big. And you said it. Two of these four games were started by Chi Chi Gonzalez and Jason Alexander. Eric Lauer needs to be good tonight. I'm not saying that it's a, a must win, as I like to say randomly on my show. This is a must pitch well for Eric Lauer. Like, we need at least five or six innings of very competitive baseball. He's been up and down. Tonight, we need him. 
we need him, especially with Ashby out, Woodruff out, Peralta out. I think you nailed it. Alexander and Chichi Gonzalez are starting two of these four. Lauer needs to be nails tonight. Ooh, the must pitch well. I like that. That's kind of like in the playoffs. It's always brought up the must win thing. I say, no, it's actually a can't lose. It's not a must yeah. win. It's a game you can't lose. But when the Bucks were tied 1-1 to the Bulls after that game two loss, that whatever, who cared about it? But I said going to game three, the Bucks don't need to win that game. They could go down 2-1, still win the series going away. But I said it's a must look good. They have to come back and not look as freaking bad as they did in game two. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's This is a similar concept where, yeah, you need Lauer to give you a good start here. I, I mentioned the runs recently. Four against Cincinnati. He ended up getting the win because the offense went nuts. Eight against Washington. That's six total home runs in his last two starts. And that is after a stretch of up and down. But that is obviously uh, the start to the year was just phenomenal. The strikeout numbers were crazy high. The strikeout numbers have dipped a bit as of late. He had five Ks over six and a third against the Reds, two over five to the Nationals. That was the disaster start. Four over six to San Diego. I You want to see those strikeout numbers trend back to what they were to start the year, but you just got to find a way to blank this lineup. And it's a lineup, Grant, and I'll go through this a little bit. They don't have much uh, experience against Lauer, and it's the opposite on the other side in terms of the Brewers against damn Adam Wainwright. Who Adam Wainwright's five and five with a three point oh six. How is this possible? They sit him up and they play. Oh, little connection difficulty with with Grant chiming in here. But uh, you mentioned what the Cardinals have have done against Lauer thus far in their careers. Nolan Arenado only fourteen at bats. He's hitting two fourteen against him. No homers. No ribbies. Harrison Bader ten at bats. He's two for ten. Dylan Carlson's only faced him once, Donovan twice, Edmund only seven times. He's hitting 286. Paul Goldschmidt's only one for nine, so maybe that's a good sign. Pujols has only faced him three times. Uh, and I, I mean, Lauer's been around a bit, but I guess he hasn't faced this iteration of the Cardinals very often. And then Juan Yepes twice. So not a lot of experience. I think that could be a good thing. Go to the other side of the ball. And I mean, how many times has Adam Wainwright thrown against the Brewers? Adamas only faced him 11 times. He's hitting 091. Keston here only 14. But you go to the meat of that Brewers lineup. Andrew McCutcheon, 70 at bats. He's hitting 314 against Wainwright. Two bombs. Jace Peterson, 20 uh, at bats against him. He's hitting 250. Hunter Renfro, only five. But Christian Yelich, 34 appearances against Adam Wainwright. Sitting 265. Luis Arias, he has two homers and only 11 at-bats against Wainwright. So there is a track record there, you would hope, yeah. that the Brewers are able to to get Wainwright. What were you saying well, before? What I, what I was saying is the Brewers touched up Wainwright pretty good last time they saw him. And while I was waiting here to get reconnected, I was trying to find the box score of that game, and I couldn't. Maybe it's, it's not even worth talking about. The thing with Wainwright, he doesn't have blow-you-away stuff. He never has. Right. He's someone out of 2013 where he throws like, you know, 92, 93. That's as high as he's going to get. The problem is with the Brewers is they never put pressure on pitchers. They never work counts. They never force a pitcher to work so they can let a pitcher like Wainwright get away with kind of cruising. They don't force a guy to make tough pitches to strike them out. They don't force high leverage moments like we saw last night. The Brewers had two base runners after the third inning, just a walk and a double. 
Like, they need to put pressure on the opposing pitcher. And if they do that tonight, they should be able to get to Wainwright. They've seen him a bunch. He doesn't have knockdown stuff. And I love the the averages that you just shared. I feel great about that. Traffic. Traffic is the key word. There was no zero, zero base runner traffic against the bullpen last night. One meaningful base runner in six innings. That ninth inning guy, we're not going to count that. So, yeah, you got to put pressure on him. You mentioned Wainwright's last start, May 26th. In St. Louis against the Brewers, they were the Brewers were 29 and 16 at the time. That was when they were cruising. Cardinals were 24 and 20. Wainwright, five innings, 10 hits, four runs, three of them earned, one walk, two strikeouts. So 10 hits. Traffic. Ten, that's the point. It's not just the the however many runs they got him for. They got four runs. They didn't score after the fourth inning. 10 hits. There was a lot more activity. There was a lot more stress put on Wainwright than just those four runs that the Brewers scored. That's the point. And everybody tallied one. That was back when Wong was at leadoff. He was one for five. Luis Arias was one for five. Yelich in the three spot. He was two for four. And now maybe leadoff Yelich can hit three for four, three for five today. Who knows? McCutcheon at four. He was two for five. Teles had a hit. Taylor had a hit. Narvaez had two. Kane even had a hit. Jace Peterson also went one for four. So, I mean, uh, familiarity, I think, is a thing. Like, the fact that the Cardinals haven't faced Lauer much could play into his advantage a bit. But Great it's also, point. you, you got to consider the context of, I mean, that's a pretty damn good Cardinals lineup. A lot of it is really young. Like, a lot of these guys, Brendan Donovan, Dylan Carlson's in his second year. You have Nolan Gorman, the rookie. So they're, they they kind of have their new age of of offensive firepower coming up to help Arnado and help Goldschmidt and help Edmund. So the fact that they haven't faced Lauer much, maybe that helps. We'll see. But it also, I feel like it's all about Lauer's stuff. It's it's all about his command. Cause I recently, we just haven't seen it Four walks against Washington. He had one against Cincinnati, but he had two walks and then three in the start before that four in the start before that. So it, it's about the command. It's about the strikeouts. I think that's my biggest key tonight. Honestly, it's, can can Eric Lauer get back to eight Ks, pitch five innings, eight strikeouts, give me one or two walks. That's it. If he does no that, walks. I think the Brewers win. You can't walk, guys, because Arenado and Goldschmidt are too good. Chances are at some point Lauer's going to make a mistake, and if somebody hits a double or a home run, you don't want traffic on the bases in front of that guy because you put him there via walks, right? That's You want to minimize any mistake, any good thing that the Cardinals do offensively, you want to minimize as much as possible. And avoiding walks is the easiest way to do that. It's also boomer take coming. I mean, see the Cardinals play some small ball last night. They did a hit and run, Grant. Well, is that small ball? I feel like a lot of teams do the hit and run. Brewers will do the hit and run. Well, they'll do the hit and run. I was going to bring up the reason Milwaukee couldn't do a hit and run is there was no one to run. No one, no one could have ran yeah. or, or hit for what it's worth. <laughs> it was, would have just been more of a swing. Yeah. They, they couldn't hit and run, but they could swing. That's about as far as they could go with that. Ugh. Yeah, you're right. I'm excited for this game tonight. Then they get a day game tomorrow. It's, it, it, it's a really interesting part of the schedule. I feel like you don't usually get these series meaning that much. And is it kind of bad that the Brewers are down in this spot that they played themselves back into it being a close race? Yeah, obviously Man. at the same time, as a sports talk radio host and someone who loves baseball, I like late June games with intrigue. Like I I like late inning playoff atmospheres in June. Yeah. If the Brewers were playing the diamondbacks this week, what would we be talking about? You know what I mean? We'd find something because you're just excellent at 
curating content. I'd play off you and we'd talk about being shirtless and it'd be fun, but this is nice. We have a lot of storylines. We have a lot of players and, and a lot of things to talk about this week with Bruce Cardinals. And yes, there's an afternoon game tomorrow, which is why I think I'm going to go fishing tonight is because I'll listen to tonight's game. Then I'll really dial in, watch tomorrow's game. And then by the time I go on at four, we'll have two games to talk about. Oh, right. Yeah, I, I guess you do get the two for one. If they were playing the Diamondbacks, you did ask, I'd probably talk about my gross indifference to that organization, which is probably the worst thing you could have towards anything. The worst reaction oh. is no reaction. I have no feelings about the Diamondbacks. I mean, Randy the Johnson. And the Diamondbacks remind, they remind me of each other. Remember back in like 2011 when the Diamondbacks were kind of sneaky good and they met in the NLDS? I always had an affinity to the Diamondbacks because they reminded me of the Brewers a lot, which yeah, means they, but, for the most part, are not very good. Yeah, but no one goes to their games. It's Arizona. Like, I know the Brewers play in Arizona in spring training. I I don't really see the similarity, frankly. Like, except Randy Johnson killed a bird. Josh Hader's a cool lefty with hair. There, There's a comp. <laughs> I think that's the yeah, best one go. I can come up with. All you right. nailed it. 877-867-1670. There is more to talk about. There, there are headlines abound. I want to talk about the PGA tour for a little bit, not to get into the weeds of all this stuff, but yesterday Brooks Kepka goes to the live. We, we, Oh, we didn't talk. That was yesterday. I, I thought we had talked about that on Monday. We talked about it on Bill's show yesterday. Kepka going to the live. The PGA tour has pretty much put out its response and many were wondering yesterday and still they're like, Ben, why, why do you say the PGA tour is screwed? Why do you say this is ruining golf? Why do you say the PGA tour just came back and it was a bad response to what the live is doing? Well, I can tell you next. It is the bill Michaels show. Ben Kenny grant bills in for bill. Covering Wisconsin sports like a blanket. This is the bill Michaels show on the Wisconsin sports zone radio network. What she would swap tours. Does that exist? Is it simple as that? I haven't given it that much. I mean, I haven't given it that much thought. Really? I, re- I mean, I was, I don't understand. I'm trying to focus on the U.S. Open, man. Like, I legitimately don't get it. I'm tired of the conversations. I'm tired of all this stuff. Y'all, like I said, y'all are throwing a black cloud on the U.S. Open. I think that sucks. I actually do feel bad for him. For- like, but- we're here to play, and you're talking about some event that happened last week. Well, there's events going to be going on now for the next foreseeable future. I know, but you can't drive a car looking in the rearview mirror. There's Brooks Kepka. That is from the U.S. Open. That is a clip that we have played on this show and has been played a good amount. He then, on Monday morning, it was announced he went to go play the Live Live Golf Tour. We've talked about that a lot on this show. If you want to see more, Grant, of how much of a complete fraud Brooks Kepka is, this is what he said at the Honda Classic regarding the Live quote, I think everyone talks about money. They've got enough of it. I don't see it backing down. They can just double up and they'll figure it out. They'll get their guys. Somebody will sell out and go for it. He said so much for months about really looking down upon those who are going to the live and we're going to go. And then yet everyone has their price. There he is jumping ship leaving. Can't say I'm very surprised. He, I would say, has the attitude and the temperament to want to play less and just make his money go sail off in the sunset. Cool. The PGA Tour responded recently, uh, and today Jay Monahan, the commissioner, had a press conference. I don't want to get into the minutia that severely, but their big response was they increased the purse significantly, the prize money, 
at eight events throughout the year by upwards of, I, I don't know, five to $10 million per event, pretty much one event a month. They also added exclusive events for the top 50 in the, from the previous year. So you play really well for a year. You get into these big money events with guaranteed money that will happen throughout the season. They're calling it the fall yeah. series, though it'll happen throughout. Pretty much, they have created new ways to line the pockets of the stars. Now, when Phil Mickelson went over at first, when this was all happening, his big argument was the stars don't make enough money, that the tour has $20 billion of a stash hidden away that the players don't see. Yes, they are lining the pockets of the stars. Cool. It's not even close to the money Phil was talking about. Phil might have been right about some things, but the way he went about it was horrible, and he also grossly overestimated, or he he, he over-dramatized what he was exactly talking about. Now, the, the news today was they added these events, and they're finding new ways for the stars to get paid. It's like, cool. I bring up often that... I think the live is ruining golf. And while yes, yeah. it is entering public discourse, like you are paying attention to it and you hadn't necessarily cared before. Many others are talking about it constantly that wouldn't talk about golf before it's ruining it. And it, this is something that can connect the other sports that others can identify with. I don't watch Steph Curry or Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers or Mike Trout because they make the most money in their sport. I'm not drawn to them because of how big their salary is. I'm drawn to them because of their greatness and their desire to go win and the work they put in to go do it, right? Steph Curry is one of the most entertaining athletes ever. Part of that is he's revolutionized the game. He's making a lot of money, but we watch him because he is exciting and you could see the desire to win as he plays, right? So just because all of the golfers are now making more money, that's not me as a fan. I'm not looking at it and saying, oh, look, everyone, golf is saved. The players are, be, are able to make more money at the top. Rory McIlroy can go get another 10 mil a year. That's not why any of us are fans of sports. And at the end of the day, why am I saying that this is ruining golf? Because it's ruining it from the fan perspective. And that is honestly why a lot of the sports do well. If golf didn't have any fans, then none of these players would be making money. And you could say the same thing and yeah, the TV contracts and all that. But if every single person stopped buying tickets to go to Brewers games, they would be, they would be screwed. They would be out of money. So at the end of the day, it should be about the fan. So I look at all this stuff that's happening. The golf world's fractured. All of the villains and a lot of the good players are now playing in some stupid exhibition match series that is dumb in every way possible. Team names are dumb. The format's dumb. The broadcasting's dumb. And it's ran by a murderous regime. And then you look at the tour and now they're creating more opportunities for the top players to just play against each other and not actually try to win something. I think it's a complete joke. <sighs> That's why I think the golf world's screwed. Well, I'm glad you came to me. You, you've come to the right person as a diehard golf fan of, <laughs> you know, weeks on end here now. Um, by the way, I did enjoy the U S open Canadian open. I've been watching more golf this summer. I think I like it more every year. Do you want to know why you enjoyed the U.S. Open, though? Why is that? Because every single guy at the top of the leaderboard, you could tell how much they want to win, and they have been guys that are, A, young and talented, but have come out and say that they play to win trophies. They play for the legacy, and they make a lot of money. And I was was pulling for Zalatoris. Um, A lot of people love to bet him. He's a popular bet every week. And he comes close, but never seems to get the cigar. 
So not even from a betting perspective, I wanted to see that guy break through. And I like seeing Fitzpatrick win anyways. He seemed likable. And I know we talked a lot about him on Monday. I have two things I want to say to you or ask you. Number one is about the money. When has golf ever been about the money? As long as I have paid attention to golf, even just as a distant thing, we never talk about how much golfers get paid. We never talk about if they were fairly compensated. We just knew that, hey, the top golfers make a ton of money off endorsements. The, the purses for these opens are huge. And they all have hot wives. It seemed like they're doing pretty good. It was never like college sports where we're always debating how much they're paid or baseball with arbitration and free agency and salary caps. The, the money part of the discourse has never been a thing as far as I've listened and paid attention to the PGA. So I don't know why all of a sudden that's becoming a thing now, other than the live is throwing around random money, of course. And because I part of it, part of the reason Phil brings it up, I think, is because he's a degenerate gambler, has lost yeah. pretty much everything he's made throughout his career and obviously wants more. And I think he is outspoken enough to be greedy in that way. I mean, obviously, I, golf is a very self-centric, greedy at times sport because it's an individual sport. You're not playing as part of a team. So I think the money thing comes into play. The reason that Phil and all them are actually mad is because they are forced to play all of these small purse, stupid events on the schedule that are really only money. No. They're money grabs for the tour, but the players aren't fairly compensated to the value they bring to those events. That's really well, that's what it's I about. Feel doing my little rinky-dink two-hour Wisco sports show after sitting in this chair on this show for <laughs> four hours, filling in for the big unit. Here's another question. So the live says, and this is a good argument for them to make, the competition is good. PGA competition is good for the game. Here's the thing, though. What what inspiration or what invention is this going to spur from either the PGA or the live? What new ideas and modern ideas exist in golf that haven't already happened. This isn't a sport that comes up with new rules and new tournaments like the NBA wants out a midseason tournament. There's no room for improvement in golf. Competition's not going to create anything new. Well, Phil would argue that this series they just added was his doing because he probably thinks of, you mentioned how Rogers might think of himself highly enough to think Benkert being released at this time was his doing. Yeah. Phil probably views this uh, raise in purses to be completely his doing. And he's right in a way like, cool, good job, dude. But the way you went about it was, was, was wrong. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it, it's tough. I think there are, there are improvements that can be made, but at the same time, competition's good in business. When you have two just competitors that play by the same rules, it yeah. is impossible to compete with a league that is paying $6 billion for their players. You mentioned like who yeah. brings value to what Steph Curry brings his contract in value to the warriors. If not more, Phil Mickelson does not bring the live $200 million of value not even close. So it's impossible to compete with a business that isn't running by the same rules. You are competition is good. This reminds me of the episode of arrested development where Michael and George Michael are running the banana stand and then Job gets pissed and opens another banana stand across the sidewalk only for the sake of messing with their banana stand. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I, competition is good, but it needs to be natural competition. And, and in golf, there's a reason why there hasn't been any startup leagues or competition because golf is it's perfect the way that it is, right? You're not going to create some new club or new rule that's only going to be invented because, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. The live creates the necessity to adapt. There's no adaptation that golf can have. This is just going to make 
it's going to water down the game and it's going to make golf less valuable. Yeah, I think it's good the way that it is. I wouldn't use the word perfect, but you can't look at any sports league and say they're perfect, right? But I think how it's operated has it, like it's good. It's just you have some greedy a holes on on yeah. the side that decided. We, compl- we complain about rules and the way the NBA's officiated the take foul. You know, reviews in the NFL. There's logistical things. We're not looking at the PGA saying, or at least I'm not. Wow, next year they really need to fix this. They need to address this in the off season. It's just different in that way. So perfect's not the right word, but we're not always tweaking it the same way we are some of these other sports. Well, there's there's one thing that I think needs to change before we continue. That's TIO relief. But no one wants to hear me talk about whether you should get relief from temporary grandstands at PGA Tour tournaments. That's that's what we well, call well, a rabbit that hole. Was, I was about to bring that up. Um, yes, whatever that means. I'll let you bat lead off with that topic, though. You explain it, and then I'll play off you. No, so I, you brought it up first. I think I'm going to have enough self-awareness to know that most people probably don't <laughs> care about my thoughts on whether you should get relief from a temporary sprinkler in the rough at a mid-level PGA Tour event. All right, 877-867-1670. We're stepping away. A lot more to come. Full hour left and then some. It is the Bill Michaels Show. Ben Kenny Grant Bills in for Bill. Ready? This is the Bill Michaels Show on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Bill Michaels show 877-867-1670. If you want to get a hold of the program, I'm trying to get this, this video to load here. Jim Edmonds on the Cardinals broadcast had some, had some interesting comments to say during the game. If I can get the video to load, we're going to play that coming up after the one o'clock top of the hour hits. Grant, are you a Bitcoin guy? (laughs) I was actually a text with some buddies about this earlier. No, I'm not. I think we talked about this when we hosted a couple months ago. And Mm. I tried to have someone explain to me how it all worked and NFTs and stuff. And I've given up. And apparently that has been kind of a lucrative decision to give up because Bitcoin and all that stuff not doing so hot these days. It was there was an article yesterday tweeted out the. Athletes who have suffered the biggest salary losses because they invested it in Bitcoin. If I'm being honest, Grant, I thought Aaron Rodgers was going to be on this list. Yeah, he seemed to invest in the right types of crypto. Of course he did. (laughs) Bastard. Uh, He's pretty good with his money. He makes, if you look at earnings just outside of contracts, Aaron Rodgers does insanely well relative to most uh, professional athletes. So the athletes that have lost the most in crypto, Saquon Barkley, 33, negative 33% return. His 10 million in Bitcoin turned into 6.6 million. Odell had 750 grand in there. That turned into about 400 grand. These are like big figures we're talking about. I can't really wrap my head around all of it, frankly. Uh, But the most or the second most, the one that's most noteworthy though, Trevor Lawrence had 24 million. In Bitcoin, I don't know how much of his rookie contract that was, but it he had all of it. Didn't he take all of it in Bitcoin? Yeah, it had to have been a good amount. A negative 62% return. It is now $9 million. Lost $15 million in Bitcoin. It's a good time to buy, Ben. Should we buy? 
I would buy as a bit for the guest hosted show. Yeah. Revising Bitcoin, and then the next time we host, whatever it is, we come back and say how screwed we are. I would do that as a bit. Do you think Bill would Venmo us 20 bucks <laughs> to put into Bitcoin? As, as show content? Yeah. I could text Bill, him. Bill needs money. <laughs> do, do you think Bill is Venmo? Uh, that's a great question. I'm going to look. <laughs> I'm gonna, All right. I doubt it. But it's, see. it's the Bill Michaels Show. We're back after this. The Bill Michaels Show Podcast. Listen, rate, subscribe.